Hello, Arizona. Welcome to the Legitimate Podcast. We are your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Polton. We are here to discuss the reality of real estate. Today's episode is Navigating a Hot Market. We have with us D. Patrick Lewis. He's the managing broker at Realty Executives. He is our managing broker. Uh, we are the AZ ONIT team, and we are associated with his team at Realty Executives. So we, we've got him on today because... He has a wealth of information and experience to share in the real estate industry. He's been through it all here in Arizona, and we've learned an awful lot from Patrick. Uh, and we're really glad to have him on the show today to talk about what the heck is going on with the residential market here in Arizona right now. It is quite an exciting time if you're in this line of work. So uh, we've got him here today so we can just uh, talk for the whole episode. He's our only guest today. Uh, we're just going to talk about what's going on and what it's like to be a realtor right now in Arizona and what the challenges are helping people get houses and sell houses in this kind of an unusual market situation. Patrick? Patrick, tell everybody about your street cred. Well, uh, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, I am fortunate to be in the business almost 20 years now. Uh, I've been a managing broker for three. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been honored to be the 2014 president of the Scottsdale Association of Realtors. I was the 2019 president of the Arizona Association of Realtors. I was also Realtor of the Year for Scottsdale in the state of Arizona in 2019. Uh, I sit on Armless's Rules Committee, and I serve at the national level on a uh, issues mobile Issues Support Mobilization Committee, where we look at uh, grants that are submitted uh, by different associations around the country uh, regarding different initiatives or laws that they're looking to protect uh, regarding private property rights uh, and real estate in general. So I'm pretty well involved in a lot of different aspects. Um, and as well as being managing broker, I have 900 agents uh, that, uh, you know, I'm honored to, to serve and be able to help uh, through a variety of different uh, issues or uh, hurdles that they may encounter in their own business. Excellent. Well, we're super glad to have you on the show today, and we've got your contact info up there. Uh, you can find Patrick at aroundscottsdale.com uh, or give him a call at 602-697-6670. Um, he can help you... Uh, buy or sell a house, or he can get you hooked up with one of his 900 agents uh, <laughs> who can do that, because uh, he's a busy guy, so <laughs> he's got a few people who help him out with those sorts of things. <laughs> so, Patrick, why don't you tell our guests, or tell us and our listeners, what the heck is going on in the Arizona real estate market right now? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty intense out there. You know, there there aren't many times that I can say where we really have a balanced market is a million and a half and up. Um, and when I refer to a balanced market, what I generally refer to is we we may talk about here on this episode months of supply. And so, mm -hmm. if no other homes came on the market. How long would it take us to burn through the, the supply at variety of different price ranges that we have right now? And so yeah. most price ranges, when it's under six months, it is a seller's market. If it's over six months, it's a buyer's market. We do not even get to six months worth of inventory until we get above a million and a half in price range here in the Phoenix area. So Interesting. Um, depending on what price range you're looking at, you uh, and if you were a buyer in 2005, 
or if you were a realtor in 2005, you got PTSD. Right? <laughs> like, it feels 2005-y out there. And, of course, that brings on a lot of talk about a crash and a bubble uh, and that kind of thing. And, and, obviously, there's just so many factors that are different than they were in 2005. Um, so what's your about those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it might be useful to go through what happened in the 05 to 2012 period and what the yeah. real factors were that contributed to the disaster that occurred back then. So the the big issues that contributed to in 05 and obviously the big warning signs that were going on at the time, A, obviously there was quite a bit of, you didn't really have to justify any loans, right? It was stated income. <laughs> you got a pulse? So, <laughs> yes, I make a million dollars and I should totally afford this home. Yes, um, I'm a waitress. So, I have four homes in Scottsdale. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so that was a huge issue right then and there was, was the lending was very lax. There was a lot of predatory lending. People that should not have owned homes were able to buy homes, things like that. Um, it was just, uh, it was not a good practice that was going on. Another big issue was the rental market. So normally, you know, hey, a waitress can buy four homes if they can rent them out. The bigger issue then was, and if you look at rental rates in the Phoenix area in 2005, there's a big crater there. You could rent a home for about $500 a month back then. Um, <laughs> and that should have been a big red flag that, hey, something is not right. This is not how it's supposed to be. Um, so combine the predatory lending with that. There was a lot of cash out equity at the time. Uh, so a lot of people were just buying homes, able to cash out a lot of equity. Uh, and when values dropped, everything was, was inflated at that time. And there were a lot of things with the, the privatization, the mortgage backed securities, things like that, that really obviously exacerbated the problem. But, but fundamentally, the predatory lending, the lack of being able to rent it out and, and the, the cash out equity that people took, those things really threw the market into, into disarray uh, as the chickens came home to roost a few years later. The big differences now, though, are rental rates are at an all-time high. I mean, if you're having trouble making your mortgage payment, you can rent out your home or a room in your home and pay most of your mortgage right now. I mean, rental rates are through the roof. They're, they're the highest that we've really ever seen, and they continue to appreciate by 8 to 10% a year right now. Um, so that, that is a big piece. There's not a lot of predatory lending or not, there is no predatory lending going on. A lot of the rules that were put in place to help safeguard a lot of that are still there. Uh, and so because I, even the mortgage industry especially does not want to see you know, the, the great recession happen again. But there's a lot of factors that have contributed to where we are now that we didn't have leading up to the great recession. So, and one of those is home builders. Home builders have underbuilt for the last 10 years. Um, that is, and I can't really blame them, right? I mean, they were kind of left holding the bag there for a while and a lot of home builders went under and they were very uh, trepidatious about getting into that position again. So as a result, 
home builders underbuilt for the last 10 years. And, and that has really been the, the main, one of the main factors for why we have such low inventory now. The other piece of it is that since the Great Recession, 3 million single family primary owned homes across the country have converted to secondary investment property. If we had just a few hundred of those come back on the market nationally, it, it would greatly help our inventory issue. Um, and so those are the reason, those are just a couple of the reasons that we're seeing, not to mention the population growth that we are seeing, the job creation going on right now, uh, some of the, the political climate and, and things like that that are going on in other states are definitely pushing a lot of, uh, immigration and migration to Arizona. And as a result, that is really, you combine all those factors, that is really what is driving up prices and is really hurting our supply right now. In terms so, of looking at what would have to happen to trigger a crash, I think it's interesting to compare the situation that we had here back in 06 um, to the situation now and look at what it took to trigger it then. Um, and what you had, you had arms resetting. Um, you had people ending up with mortgage payments that were substantially more than they could ever hope to repay. And you mentioned the very low rental rates uh, and how now, if you can't pay your mortgage, you can rent your house out. You could go Airbnb. Yeah, you could go to a more affordable location that you can pay based on your own income. Uh, maybe rent the place that you live in, uh, rent an apartment, and rent out the house that you own. Um, to someone who will pay your entire mortgage every month with their rent. And that situation did not exist back in 06 or so because we had people with predatory lending situations, like you mentioned, who had been essentially convinced that they could afford a whole lot more house than could ever reasonably be justified. And they ended up in situations where when interest rates went up and their adjustable rate mortgages readjusted, they could not possibly hope to pay their mortgage. And the way the banks responded, because this was a relatively new situation to them too, was by foreclosing on everybody. They but now <laughs> you've got this awesome tool called a loan modification, and banks have a higher diligence standard for avoiding foreclosure. So they have to actually try to help you avoid foreclosure. So even though right now we have a lot of people in forbearance who under the CARES Act have forbeared their mortgage for six months, a year, going on 18 months now, you know, a lot of people are making assumptions that these markets are going to go or these houses are going to go into foreclosure. And it's like, why do you think that? They can do a loan mod and just tack on all those mispayments onto the back. Some people can actually afford to repay the entire amount and not have to do a loan modification at all. So, and so a lot of these people have equity. They can just refinance and have a cheaper mortgage payment. Very important point. Back in 06, we had predatory lending on HELOCs and cash-out refis in addition to just purchase money. People were being encouraged very strongly, and encouraged is uh, perhaps not even a strong enough word, to take all the equity out of their houses and use it to buy boats, to buy whatever, houses. to just spend it, whatever, uh, like it was free money. And those were not great terms on those HELOCs, typically. And when uh, things went south with the economy as a whole, it became a self-accelerating downward spiral where people then could not afford to keep the houses. And the banks did what they traditionally did and immediately foreclosed because it was their understanding that that was the most effective approach to recovering uh, the money that they were owed was to promptly 
uh, foreclose on homes that were in default, sell them at auction, and take what you could get. And Then they learned. Then they learned <laughs> that when you do that to everybody, it destroys the economy and also results in the destruction of your entire banking institution. Yes. <laughs> so now, you know, they're a lot more careful to make sure that people have enough equity that they can be cushioned if the market corrects. And before we started, before we went live here today, Patrick, you were mentioning that here in the Valley, um, what was it? Like almost everybody has more than 11% equity in their houses. It was a great number. Yeah, it's actually, that's a national stat. 91% of homeowners have at least 11% equity in their home right now. Holy cow. That's according to Black Knight. And they track a lot of those, those types of numbers. So that's something that we didn't have, right? To your point, Mike, everybody had done or was encouraged to do these cash out, the cash out refis. And so they, everybody was cashed out to the hilt and then values dropped. And we are not seeing, even though we've had a lot of refis lately, we are not seeing cash out refis to the level that we were back then. No, certainly not on the kinds of terms that that they were happening back then with short reset periods on arms and fairly high interest. And there were all kinds of balloon arrangements that were getting put in place that would trigger just inevitable disaster. Uh, And now, instead, we have fairly reasonable underwriting requirements that are pretty uniformly enforced and more conservative borrowing and more conservative lending. And you've got this. 10 or 11% equity cushion on most of these properties that makes it so that if there is any kind of a market correction or a slide in value, that just results in a little bit more supply going into the market um, in some cases, and it it results in people just sitting on that equity cushion and being able to absorb it and to continue to pay those mortgages. And that's what prevents this from being a precipitous cliff uh, the way that it was back then. Well, and and I also think that the mindset has changed on it, right? Real estate has gone back to a longer-term investment. You'll remember kind of there during the boom, it was three- and five-year arms, right? (laughs) So we're going to amortize it at 30 years, so you get a 30-year payment, but it's due in three or five years. Yeah. Um, You know, that's like, you know, when you were in college, and you leased a car, right? Well, I'll be making enough by the time the lease comes up to buy it. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> I feel like it was a very similar situation with those arms. Yeah. And I think that is what really pushed the systemic failure quickly is because it was just a Band-Aid. People could barely afford it for three years, and then the balloon payments came up, and there was nothing they could do about it. And so, and uh, interest we rates just, were so much higher. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's anybody that's higher. griping about interest rates right now, please go Google historical interest rate chart. Um, <laughs> because back then it was, I think it was five, six percent. And, and then and they were adjusting. Were thrilled, thrilled with it. Um, yeah, and they were adjusting them. And so it, you know, there were so many things, but, but also <laughs> the, the bigger issue then too, or, or the bigger issue now is that we have so many more people living here. We have a, yes. a million and a half more people living here than we did at that time. And we have way fewer homes on the market. Absolutely. And, and so there continues to be high demand. You know, pending home sales continue to outpace active listings right now, nationally and here in Phoenix. 
And I think that shows that demand is not waning right now. And one of the advantages of having inventory as low as it is right now is as things ramp up or as, because eventually it's got to change, right? It's got to, it's got to change a little bit, but as, as that inventory builds, we're going to see that coming six months out. Right. And, and so we will need inventory to be added at a regular you know, eight, 10% pace for months and months and months and months before we get back to even a, a, a balanced market. Now, as we're facing that run up and in inventory is, is starting to climb, is everybody going to, everybody going to be jumping on, you know, Oh my gosh, see, here's the bubble. It's coming. Um, and I think that's the stuff that we need to really look out for is that I think we're going to see a, a nice plateauing. Uh, if inflation continues to be out of hand, I do think the Fed's going to raise rates a little bit, which is going to in turn push banks to raise their rates a little bit so that they can make some money. Um, and that is going to kind of cool things down a little bit. But, you know, we'll see second half of this year what that really looks like. And a lot of it's going to depend on home builders, which have their own headwinds uh, right now. Lumber. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Everything. Everything. Lumber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Window backlog. <laughs> yes. Everything. Well, and as we've talked about in some of our sales meetings, right, it's not necessarily we don't have the supply here. We don't have enough truck drivers to get the supply around. And with all the COVID restrictions and different warehouses shutting down and things like that, it's and then everybody forgets about the whole Suez Canal back up. Um, All of that affected our supply on multiple levels. And Um, in the future. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I don't see some of this. I see us continuing to be in a good market, you know, at least through the end of this year, at least. So what advice do you have for agents who are trying to help buyers right now? So the most important thing you can do is find out what does the seller need? What what are their – do they need to be there after close of escrow? Um, do, are they looking to net a certain amount? What what does a seller need right now? Um, and then I always encourage agents to really try to build that relationship. But then it's one of two things that's important to a seller, right? It's time or money. And so what, how can we give them certainty that we're going to close without giving up all of our rights? I, I think some of that is a buyer paying uh, part of the seller's closing costs. Helps the seller net a little bit more. You're not going crazy over. Um, thanks to AAR, we now have a new clause in the additional clause addendum that is a, it's a kind of an amount over appraisal price with a maximum so that if your clients are looking to do that, that, that can be very helpful. You know, but the best thing that a buyer's agent and a buyer can do right now is persevere. Um, the, their home is out there, but it's going to be tough. And, and the reality of it is, is as a buyer, if you don't have some cash to play with, it is going to be a challenging environment the, without a doubt. It's just the nature of the beast right now. And so, so, uh, you know, some buyers are going out there and, and waiving their inspection and waiving their appraisal and waiving all of these things. And then, you know, things don't work out and everything falls apart and it gets contentious. I would encourage agents to really look at ways to get the offer accepted without 
um, without having to give up as much for the buyer. I've seen a lot of escalation clauses, but I, I have seen a lot of sellers in their listings ask. They've started saying no escalation clauses in the offers because you get three or four escalation clauses competing. Yeah, you know the sellers are like, how much? Do you, how much are you going to pay? <laughs> What's your bottom line? Give me a number. What are you willing to pay for the house? Right. And that's an interesting like, point because I think that's something where it used to be, you know, escalation clauses were very rare, and if you used one, you would be the only offer that used an escalation clause, and that that happened for a short period of time here, and then everybody started using them. And depending on how those clauses are drafted, they can make your offer indefinite. Uh, It can become essentially, in a way, a non-offer. And you can end up with a situation where you have multiple escalation clauses that are in competition, and it results in sort of a uh an illogical situation that can't be reconciled where you cannot determine who is actually providing the better offer and it puts the seller and the seller's agent in a very difficult position but it also puts those buyers in a bad position because it doesn't get a deal done right away you can't just accept one of those you have to go back and say all right guys sort it out who's going to buy this thing <laughs> well and you get one or two and if they don't have a limit on them mhm Okay, so what do we just we just keep going up and up and up and up and up and up? You know, I, I mean, it, it's it's not, but also it's like going to a seller and being like, "All right, I'm going to give you two hundred thousand dollars, unless I can get it for one eighty five." <laughs> you know what I like? It's, I'm willing to pay up to this amount, but not unless somebody else is willing to pay over that amount. Yes. Um, and I just, I think for buyers, it's not the best strategy. If you're willing to pay two hundred thousand, and the home is lifted at one seventy five, then say, you know what, I'm willing to pay two hundred thousand. And here we go. Um, and obviously there's some considerations about appraisal and things like that. But from a seller standpoint, a seller wants to know that you're in, right? That you love the property, that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I, I'm not a big fan of the escalation clause. I think there's so many other ways that buyer's agents can can position themselves. And one thing to, to note, too, as of this morning, there's almost 5,000 homes on the market, which is actually up. We're very happy about it. Um, but 1,800 homes, 1,800 of those homes have been on the market over 30 days. And so we always hear these media articles about, all oh, this stuff is just flying off the shelves. Well, you know, a third of the homes out there have been on the market over 30 days. And I think that's important for people to recognize and to look at um, because – not only is the supply chain affecting new home builders, it's also affecting flippers, um, investors, things like that. So a lot of homes that are out sell. there may have not yeah. been, you know, they haven't been fancified yet. So uh, a lot of buyers are like, mm, not sure if I want that. Well, these are the things that are out there. And if you're willing to put in the time and the energy, I think it can be very lucrative. The other concern too, is I think people don't want to overpay right now. I hear that a lot, (laughs) but I got to say with, with the market doing what it's doing right now with say roughly two to 3% a month, 
you know, the 10 grand you're overpaying or the 20 grand you're overpaying, in theory, you will make that up, you know, within say six months or a year uh, of that. So I often tell my buyers, how much do you want to pay to not look at homes anymore? Yep. Because that's ultimately what it comes down to. How badly do you want this house? Absolutely. It's an interesting point. You know, people often look at uh, $5,000, $15,000 difference in the home price as being a big sticking point, when in reality, the fair market value of that house changed by a lot more than that in the last 60 days. Yeah. And to give you a for instance of that, a lot of new home builders now are not giving pricing. They are building the home out as much as they can until about two months prior to them releasing it. They will give you a price, maybe give you options to pick things um, because they were missing out on all that appreciation the time that it took to build the home. And so even home builders, you find, are using the market as a way to leverage more profits for themselves. Homeowners can do the exact same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what about multiple offers? You know, one of the trends that you're seeing are, you know, some people and realtors are encouraging their clients to make multiple offers on their top favorite houses and hoping one of them sticks. Please, let's talk about that. That is a catch-22, right? So, well, first of all, if you're a realtor in Arizona and you're writing multiple offers, it needs to be disclosed. We have a form called a multiple offer form, and it, and it gives the buyer the final say so that they don't end up buying three homes at once. Uh, so I can't encourage using that enough, but, you know, it, it can be effective for the buyer, However, it doesn't make the seller feel very special. And I think that's the problem that it comes to is that the seller wants to know that you're in and that you are going to complete this sale. When they're seeing four or five multiple, you know, offers, it's like, oh, well, they've made offers on other properties too. How serious are they? So while it can be an effective tool, I struggle with that one because I don't think it sends a great message to the seller. Um, but I get it from the buyer standpoint. I do think we're going to see more of it um, as, you know, things continue to be tight and buyers are getting fatigued. And they're like, you know what? Let, there's three we like. Let's try all three and see what we can do. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of a consumer mindset adjustment that needs to happen. But... Uh, that's the biggest thing I find is if you're making multiple offers, there's a form for that for a reason. It, it needs to be disclosed. But if you send out three offers and all three sellers accept, you could be losing some earnest money. I mean, you know, you're putting your now you have three contracts that you need to hire an attorney to talk about the repercussions of canceling those contracts. It's an interesting um, so don't point put your client in that position. Uh, because in that kind of a situation, it's easy to say, well, you can just reject it during the inspection period. And that's assuming you didn't waive your inspections because of the market conditions right now. You right. know, if you waived all your inspections and appraisal contingencies and it's just a completely non-contingent offer, then you're in a tough spot and you're probably losing the earnest money. But the other issue you've got is if you're doing multiple offers and they all get accepted and you reject all but one of them during inspection, for no particular reason, you just say, oh, we decided uh, based on our inspections that we're not going to proceed. Um, well, 
Are they going to make a big deal out of it? Probably not, because they'll be able to sell it to another buyer. Um, realistically, in the current market, it's not likely that the seller is going to make a huge deal out of that, because the house is probably worth more next month than it was for your contract. But No doubt. But, arguably, you may have breached your contract by rejecting it during the inspection period for reasons that had nothing to do with the inspection, when it's pretty darn clear that really what happened is you ended up buying another house and you just don't want to go through with the deal. Uh, if somehow that ends up damaging the seller, um, yeah, you're probably going to lose that earnest money if push comes to shove, and it isn't going to be worth fighting over, because that's going to be a big, complicated mess that's going to cost more to sort out than your earnest money. So The, the contract says you have to make a good faith effort yes yeah. <laughs> good faith good faith effort and if you find out they don't and the seller wants to go after it because the other piece of that too mike is what if that seller now has gone out and, and made a contingent offer on another property yep and now there's a domino effect due Absolutely. to this contract canceling and things like that so the the buyer is potentially opening themselves up to also damages yes. should they have to cancel it um from from the seller and things like like that. So it's just not a good position to be in. Not a good position. You know, it sticks no. out to me that in the commercial world, it's pretty typical to send LOIs on a whole bunch of different deals. But they're uh, LOIs. But they're <laughs> LOIs. It's not a binding offer to, to enter the deal. <laughs> it's totally different. You to negotiate, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to fly when you're buying uh, residential properties right now. So. All right. No, so. Do we have any final thoughts on what people should know in trying to navigate a hot market? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for me, it, it's understand that this is not a bubble. If you are concerned about prices going up, if you're concerned about interest rates, the best way to freeze time is to buy now. The, the, the population is growing. The workforce is growing. We continue to add jobs. We continue to have people migrate here. This is going to continue to be a very good market for investment and for primary residents for quite some time to come. Awesome. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's been great having you on. Again, you can thank find you. Patrick at aroundscottsdale.com or give his team a call at 602-697-6670. This has been Legitimate. Thank you all very much for listening. And we will chat with you guys next time.